In both the Old and New Testaments, faith is equated with the fear of God. This fear is not the, it's not the terror of the wicked before the holiness of God, but it is the reverent fear of those who have been loved and redeemed by the blood of Christ and who have trusted in Him truly. So nearness to God or being in fellowship with God or walking with God necessarily brings about a a greater understanding of His majesty. And that serves really to magnify in our own hearts the sense of awe and, and reverence that we ought to have when we approach Him in worship. And so it's no surprise that what we could call reformed worship, which so heavily emphasizes the majesty of God, is also characterized by a a reverend style of worship, right? If God is holy, 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 if majestic is his name, then our worship of him shouldn't be flippant. It shouldn't even be casual, In fact, it ought to be regulated by Scripture. Well, reverence, when you think of reverence, it implies restraint, doesn't it? Reverence implies restraint. Um, Back when I was in college, I went on a biblical archaeology trip. One of the stops took us to the Vatican. And while we were there, we were being led on a tour of the, the grounds and buildings of the Vatican. We were brought inside the Sistine Chapel. The Sistine Chapel is probably one of the most famous buildings in the world. And as soon as you walk in, you are met with a sense of awe. Not only f- really for the historical significance of this building, the chapel, this is the place where for the last several hundred years the Roman Catholic popes have been chosen, but even for, even, even for the amazing artwork all over the place, most notably, of course, Michelangelo's ceiling. And that reverence, e- even just for the architecture, It it brings about a natural restraint. So you're compelled to whisper when you're in there. Children are kept under control. Photography is actually prohibited. 25,000 people a day, according to the Vatican's own website, 25,000 people a day visit the Sistine Chapel and there's a dress code. And they may look funny, but the Swiss guard are not to be messed with. There's a kind of reverent restraint. And a reverent restraint in worship, sometimes we think of this as beginning with uh, the Reformation. But Clement of Alexandria in the 2nd century A.D., He spoke out against all sorts of uh, what he called revelry in the church. He said that it was this kind of revelry in the church was an inebriating pipe serving only to arouse the sensuous passions. In fact, he said this. He said, if people occupy their time with pipes 
and psalteries and choirs and dances and Egyptian clapping of hands. I don't know what that means. And such disorderly frivolities, they become quite immodest and intractable. To Clement, these, those activities, they were, they were contrary to the apostolic command of, of Romans chapter 13, verse 12, where Paul instructs us to cast off the works of darkness. Proper worship, he taught, Clement said, was reverent, it was temperate, it was appealing to the rational soul, he said. There's another collection of early church documents called the Apostolic Constitutions. They were put together in the 4th century, probably. They're really early. And they also depict an, an orderly and reverent worship services of the church. In fact, it says that a deacon was appointed to oversee the people that nobody may whisper, nor slumber, nor laugh, nor nod, for all ought in the church to stand wisely and soberly and attentively, having their attention fixed upon the word of the Lord. Oh, as far as I know, we don't have deacons moving through the sanctuary shushing people or waking them up or prohibiting them from laughing, although every time I tell a joke, I wonder. But we do have instructions from Scripture as to how Orderly worship was to be approached in the apostolic age, which has implications for us today. Now, just so that we're clear about this, the apostolic age is defined like this. It is the initial formation, growth, and development stage of the early church. It is directly tied to the leadership of the 12 apostles. The apostolic age was characterized by great signs that validated the message of the apostles. The apostolic age began after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and closed at the end of the first century A.D. with the death of the apostle John, who was the final apostle to die. We live in the age of the church which was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now that, that distinction between the apostolic age and the church age, that's going to make sense a little bit further along here this morning. So as we get into this, let's pick up where we left off last week and read 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 26. We'll read through the end of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians 14, 26. The Apostle Paul continues and says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should, be kept, uh, should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. 
If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it's reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's stop and pray. Father, it is our prayer that... um, that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would feed us, that you would encourage our hearts and cast our, cause us to cast our eyes upon you, upon Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I pray that any of our own sin would be dealt with, that we might focus only on you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I, I need to again because the context of these verses is very important for us to understand what's going on here. So for several chapters now, Paul has been instructing the Corinthian church about assembled worship. He's saying essentially, when you come together, this is what you ought to do. Actually, he has said several times, when you come together, this is what you're doing, but this is what you ought to do. And in today's passage, he comes to the end of these specific instructions about assembled worship, and he finishes by laying out several practical directions that come from the principles that he's been establishing throughout these chapters. It really begins in the middle of chapter 11 and goes all the way through 14. And it's important to remember that because this is the apostolic age that he is writing in and to. The time Paul is writing this, the sign gifts, that is those miraculous gifts like speaking in tongues, were still active in the church. Now, in an earlier sermon, a few probably months ago at this point, um, I went through why I believe that they have ceased, so I'm not going to go through all of that again. But they are, at this time that Paul is writing this, still active. Paul does not prohibit them. Yet almost as a Almost as a hint, I think, as a hint to their upcoming completion that the, that the need for them would, would, would pass. And even as a way to prepare the church for, for when they would cease, he severely restricts the, their use. The use of these sign gifts, particularly speaking in tongues. He's especially focused on that because this is something that the Corinthian church was abusing. It's not as if Paul just doesn't simply like the gift of speaking in tongues, like it makes him uncomfortable, because he's just said up in verse 18, he said this, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. No, no, what he's doing in this passage, in these verses, is addressing the issues that the Corinthians are specifically facing. And in so doing, he focuses our attention on what truly matters in assembled worship. Now, additionally, these instructions prepare the way for the end of the apostolic age when, as I said, the sign gifts would cease and the role of elders and pastors and their responsibility to teach and exhort from the Scriptures becomes more and more central to the life of the church. So, 
as we think about um, the New Testament timeline, 1 Corinthians, this letter, we believe was probably written around 54 A.D., about 20 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. But it was also written about eight, maybe eight or ten years before Paul would write the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy and Titus. And the reason that I bring that up is because in those letters, the pastoral, first, first and second Timothy, but first Timothy in particular, and the book of Titus, his letter to Titus, in those letters, he lays out the qualifications for elders. Meaning that, that, that after he writes this, about eight or ten years later, he's going to give further instruction that the church is going to need as the apostolic age comes to a close, as the apostles, frankly, die out. But this is before that. It's before he writes um, to Timothy and Titus. And so what we see here is Paul laying out instructions for the church for edification, for instruction. He gives a little something for the ladies and then some closing arguments. So let's look at this. We'll kind of follow that outline. Verse 26, for edification. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up, for edification. This is an interesting verse. Um, newer versions, like the English Standard I just read, or um, some of the other newer uh, versions, they portray this as Paul's instruction as to what should happen when the saints gather. That's how I've always read it. I always read it that way, that this, he's saying this is what you should do. But listen to, I'm just going to read this verse in the New American Standard Version. The NASB says this, What is the outcome then, brothers and sisters? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All things are to be done for edification. And so the implication here is that in the older versions is that this, this verse is actually should be taken negatively as a rebuke, as Paul saying, this is what you are doing. Kind of to back this up, the, the notes in, the, in John MacArthur's study Bible in this verse says this. I think that this is helpful for understanding. He says, it, it seems that chaos and lack of order was rampant in that assembly. And we know that from what we've seen all through uh, this letter so far. Everyone was participating with whatever expression they desired, whenever they desired. Charles Bridges as well in his commentary, he, he says that as often as they come together, he says, one has this and another that. And then he goes on to describe this list of what we're bringing that we see here in this verse. He says, one is impelled by the Spirit to pour forth his heart in a song of praise, something prepared for the occasion. One is impelled to deliver an address or to pray in an unknown tongue. One is claimed to receive a revelation from God which he desires to communicate. One is prepared to give the interpretation of some discourse previously delivered in an unknown tongue. This passage, indeed the whole chapter, portrays a lively image of the early Christian assembly. That's sort of an understatement. They had lively worship. 
Paul blames them. What he's doing here in this verse is blaming them for the confusion that they have introduced into the assembly with their ostentatious displays of their own spiritual gifts. Now, combine combine this picture of everybody showing up and doing essentially whatever they want on Sunday mornings, especially speaking out in tongues. Combine that with what we saw back in chapter 11. Do you remember what was happening at their communion? Paul says this, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Then he says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. It's this kind of assembled chaos that Paul is writing here. It is the church doing whatever they want when they come together. Some are going without and some are eating to excess or drinking to excess. People are showing up with their own agendas. But Paul bookends this passage, 26 to 40, with these two phrases that are connected. He says, let all things be done for building up at the end of verse 26. And then the very last verse, verse 40, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, I want to point this out. Do you know what's missing in all of this? Paul does not address anywhere here the concept of elders and pastors. He doesn't even bring it up. He's talking specifically to the church. Now, not long after his time at Corinth, which we read about in Acts chapter 18, after that, after he was in Corinth, he went to Ephesus. We know that from Acts chapter 19. We know from Acts chapter 20 that the Ephesian church had elders because they had a meeting. He calls them together. And so it's safe to assume, and we have to be careful here, it's safe to assume that the Corinthian church also had elders. Yet because of the division and the fighting, if if there were elders, probably there were, but if there were elders, they certainly were not in control. They certainly were not leading the church in godliness. And as a result, and combined combined with the church's sort of uh, propensity towards self-centeredness and towards showing off, people were coming to church with their own agendas, and the result was chaos and confusion. And so Paul's directive here is simple, and and it's applicable to all churches Every element of our worship services should be done for edifying, for building up one another, for building up the church. It's not enough to show up to church on Sunday morning and say, God told me or God is leading me to sing this song I wrote on the way in this morning. If you did that, very few of you would get away with that. Maybe one or two, but very few would get away with being able to come up and sing a song you wrote on the way in this morning. Or God gave me this vision and I just want to share this. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Everything is to be done for building up decently and in order. It's not enough to benefit the person bringing it. Whatever is done must be done for the edification of the church. And this is a baseline. This is a a minimum requirement. But, but notice as we continue here that the focus, is, and this is not a surprise if you've been paying attention through these several chapters, the focus is on prophecy or preaching and not on speaking in tongues. 
See, not only is worship to be for edification, but it is also to be for instruction. For instruction. He begins specifically with instructions for the gift of speaking in tongues. Verse 27 and 28. He says, if, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or at most, or only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Remember that tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues, foreign languages, is portrayed in, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, um, specifically in verse 11, like this. Those who heard the tongues proclaimed, we hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own language, the mighty works of God. And so in Corinthian worship, as we saw last week, a tongue, a foreign language. It must be interpreted lest any unbeliever who happened to be present think one of two things. Either A, and we saw this last week, these people are nuts. They are out of their minds. They are crazy. Or, and we saw this in Acts chapter 2, they came to the conclusion that those speaking in tongues were drunk. And what's interesting is that according to uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, I just read, some of them were. <laughs> some of them were at church drunk. So you can imagine the chaos that would ensue for people who had no idea what was going on. Without proper interpretation, and again, we're speaking here of the apostolic age, without interpretation, their tongues-infused worship becomes all about the show, or at worst, it becomes just, just bedlam, just chaos. Now, what's interesting about this, another thing that's interesting here, is that the Apostle Paul clearly believes, he clearly believes, based on this instruction, that, that Christians who are inspired by or filled with the Spirit, they remain in control of themselves. They're not, they're not to get carried away, uh, but, but they are able to, to put it this way, they're able to hold their tongues. He says, let them remain silent. And so he gives three criteria for this to be acceptable, again, during the apostolic age. The first is this. He says, two or at most three people are allowed to speak in tongues during worship. It's not a free-for-all. Secondly, he says, each one who speaks, speaks when it's his turn. Again, so much of the, uh, what we sometimes call charismania that we see out there today, it looks nothing like what the Apostle Paul is instructing here. In fact, it looks just like the Corinthian church. And, this, and, and I would say that it is a sign. It's a sign to run from that place. And then three, the third criteria that he gives Someone must be able to interpret. And again, this is a known language. Otherwise, keep silent in church. And if you must, tell it to the Lord at home. <laughs> now also, we have to remember this. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues is not. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So during the apostolic age... If someone had the gift of speaking in tongues and was compelled to say something in worship, it must be done for the instruction of the congregation. It must be done decently and in order. 
And then Paul continues by explaining that the gift of prophecy was also to be used for instruction. Pick it up in verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let, all the, others, uh, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and, be, and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. We'll stop there. One of the things that's clear from these chapters is that Paul, Paul values or, or even prizes prophecy over speaking in tongues because of its greater usefulness for building up the church. He said as much up in verse 5. But not only does Paul see it uh, as useful in building up the church, we saw last week that the Lord uses prophecy or preaching to convict unbelievers and bring them to repentance. That's really verses 24 and 25 above. We looked at that last week. But nevertheless, as a spiritual gift, it still needs to be regulated or restrained. And I think what's most interesting here, and again, I've already mentioned this, but the theology and the function of elders and pastors, Paul has not yet fully developed that. He's not written all of that yet, at least not in Corinth. And so as Paul is reigning in the church here in this, he gives them three specific instructions. First, he limits the number of people prophesying or preaching. Now remember, during the apostolic age, the Bible was still being revealed. New revelation was still being given as the Bible was being written down. So there is a miraculous element to this kind of prophecy. Proof that what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians is spirit-inspired. After the apostolic age, after the apostles had all died and the, the, the canon of Scripture, the, the body of, of the Bible was completed when the church age begins, we're going to see the focus uh, of the church really shift to appointing elders and, and pastors who will be able to rightly divide the word of truth, who will be able to teach God's word correctly and, and live lives in keeping with it. Secondly, he tells them, to only preach one at a time. Now, to us, this only makes sense, right? <laughs> We're not having competing sermons around the room. Um, but Paul had to speak order into the Corinthian chaos. Their services were chaotic. And he had to speak order into them. And again, later, this problem is solved by the appointment of qualified men who are as 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us, apt to teach. And then third, the assembly, those who are there, is to appraise or weigh what is said. But the standard is not merely subjective. Look at verse 32. He says this, He says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that those who claim to speak authoritatively as the spiritual gift of prophecy, they are subject to other prophets, to Scripture. There are actually Old Testament laws concerning prophecy 
about how they must come true and how they're to be tested. But, but let's go to Acts chapter 17. Let me show you in Acts chapter 17, verses 10, 11, and 12. Acts 17, 10 says this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not with, a, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. They examined the scriptures and believed. They believed the things that Paul was saying because what Paul was saying lined up with the other prophets, with the scripture. And, and I also want to point out the, the plural nature of this. this. This appraisal of the prophecy of the preaching. It isn't a solo effort. Um, in Berea, they examined the scriptures daily. It's not me and my Bible disagreeing with the teaching of the church. Even Protestant Christians can see the importance of what theologians sometimes call the great tradition, the, the teaching of the church that's been passed down through the generations that we see it as, as binding and authoritative, not because it is rooted in the church, but because it's rooted in Scripture. If I may just plug this again, this really emphasizes the need for churches to value historic creeds and confessions. But remember the purpose of this again. Paul says, that all may learn and be encouraged. And we are to always remember verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And this attribute of God, peace, this is the source of our encouragement. When we, when we come in and read the word of God, and we are purposefully reading through 2 Kings, which is hard to read, it's hard to understand, it can be hard to follow, it can be repetitive, you can read through it, and, and as you're up here reading through it, think to yourself, isn't this what I read last week? Am I reading the wrong chapter? Because it's over, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, they did what was evil, in, right? It's repetitive, it can be hard. The names are hard. The, but it's God's word. It's given to feed us, to encourage us. And when we look specifically at what happens in the history of the nations of Israel and Judah as they've split up during the time of the kings, and how many times do we see that the people follow the king who does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord? How many times do we see a people not repent when they've been told over and over and over again to repent, to turn back to God, to tear down the idolatry, the high places, we can see the lack of peace in the nation of Israel as they go further and further away from the Lord. But our God is a God of peace, 
And this is the source of our encouragement. This is why at the start of all of our worship services, when we come together on a Sunday morning, the first thing, and I try to do this every single week, the first thing that we say is the apostolic greeting. It is something along the lines of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you are a Christian, that is true. You've been told lies all week long by all kinds of people and sources, whether it's your feed, whatever that is, right, or the news or people around you. Our society, our culture is lying to us all over the place. But you know what's true? Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. That's the first thing you need to hear when we come together to worship our God. If you are His, if you have trusted in Him for salvation, that is true. No matter what's happening in the world, no matter what's happening in your family, no matter what is happening at your job, Your God is a God of peace, and he brings you a word of peace this morning. And so what we have seen here is Paul has given us instructions for our assembled worship, and they are to be for edification, for the building up of the church, for for our instruction, so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And now he inserts a little something for the ladies. Verses 34 and 35. Really, in the middle of verse 33, the paragraph begins, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What do we do with these verses? Some scholars and, and some commentaries, um, usually those who hold to an egalitarian position, they disregard these verses altogether as irrelevant to the church today. But that only leads to the disregard of, of really any passage that says something we disagree with, which means that, well, essentially that ends up meaning that we are the authority over Scripture and not the other way around. But these things must not be. And so I would remind you, as you consider these words, I would remind you of the context. First of all, it is the assembled worship of the church. And then even more specifically, through these verses we've been looking at this morning, he's been, Paul has been writing about the authoritative speaking in the assembly, both the speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecy. He's been talking about the authoritative speaking in the assembly. So the question is, do these words mean what they say? Or we could put it this way. Does this contradict other New Testament passages which portray women as clearly, clearly having a vital role in ministry? For example, in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 26, we read this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. 
And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla was actively involved with her husband Aquila in the discipleship of Apollos, who right after that, right after those verses in Acts chapter 18, he was sent to Corinth to minister. And Paul, at the beginning of this letter, talks about Apollos a lot because he was there right after Paul was. Additionally, we know from Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila were well known among the Corinthians. That's actually where she and Aquila met Paul. So, so let me answer the question. These words mean what they say. We need to take this at face value and understand that this, this continues to regulate worship, specifically of authoritative teaching. Remember, in the, in the previous verses, we were instructed to weigh the prophecies and the revelations, to evaluate them based upon uh, the agreed upon and the established prophets, based upon the Word of God. This is about orderly, peaceful worship. And so implied in these verses are the fact that godly men, husbands, spiritually leading their wives, and actively involved in the doctrinal protection of the church. That's what's happening here. So here's the picture. During the apostolic age, new revelation is being given, which was accompanied by signs and wonders, most notably speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is frankly easy to fake, right? And so during this time, false prophets, false teachers were springing up and they were leading people astray. Along these same lines, Paul will have to write, when he writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened by sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Paul is trying to protect the church, both its doctrinal purity and its families. Paul is working here to protect the church. So, I'll ask it this way. Can you see this at work today in the work of the elders of the church? Can you see it at work? Paul is establishing here a basis for a godly church leadership which is rooted in the creative order, rooted even in the law of God, he says. This wasn't just simply cultural for the people of Corinth. It was rooted in the law of God. He says, as the law also says. It's probably a reference to Genesis chapter 2. This is where he goes next in his closing arguments. Pick it up in verse 36. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? 
If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone uh, does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not for, uh, forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now it's possible to read um, these two questions at the beginning here in verse 36, uh, to read them as being very sarcastic. But that's, I don't think that's Paul's intent. I, I really think this follows his normal pattern of asking rhetorical questions, right? Um, he obviously expects a little bit of pushback from the Corinthians to his arguments, but these questions are designed to undercut the sort of, uh, the sort of maverick way that the Corinthians have been approaching worship. So in verse 37, he's saying, look, if you are so gifted, if you believe that you have this or that spiritual gift, then you have to acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That Paul is an apostle. Not only, not just these last couple of verses, but all of this instruction regarding orderly worship and the use of spiritual gifts in these chapters are a command of the Lord. And so he says in verse 38 that if we disregard Scripture, if we disregard the command of the Lord, then we will be disregarded ourselves, he says. This is, this is a reference to something Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And as Paul finishes, as he finishes this instruction, he once again stresses the importance of preaching over speaking in tongues. He tells them not to take it too far and forbid what is a true gift of the Spirit. And the reason that we worship the way that we do here at Redemption Bible Church, sorry, it's taking me a second, at Redemption Bible Church, the reason that we worship here the way that we do, the, the reason that we follow a, a certain liturgy, which just means an order of worship, is because the Lord is holy, holy, holy. It's because majestic is His name. It's because He, he has called us out of the darkness and into His glorious light. We, we worship in the way that He has prescribed in His Word. That's our goal, to be conformed to his word. D.A. Carson, famous theologian, he wrote this. Order is necessary only to constrain self-indulgent abuses and to create an atmosphere in which the gifts of all can work together to build up the community in love. We are called to build one another up, to encourage one another, to gather together and to pay careful attention to the public reading of Scripture, to the preaching of God's Word, to prayer. We are called to come together into the ordinary means of grace that we might be encouraged. 
Because, frankly, we're in the midst of a battle in a crooked and perverse generation that is getting worse every day. And so when we gather here, there are those who will be held accountable for the things that are taught. The Bible calls them elders. Those who will be held accountable to what you have been taught from God's word. Those who are called to protect and feed the church, the sheep of, of Christ. And so we are called to come together to be reminded that our God is a God of peace. We're called to come together to be reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I am thankful that the Apostle Peter has said that there are some things in Paul's writing that's hard to understand because he was right. I am thankful, Lord, that, that we have a lifetime to explore your word, to read and to study. I am thankful, Lord, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to teach us that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, I am grateful that you have called us together to protect us, that we're not out there as sheep without a shepherd just wandering around but that you have called us together. You have called us to not forsake the meeting together, but to come together to sing your praises, to pray to you, to read your word, that we might rest in the finished work of Christ, that we might be encouraged by one another, that we might be built up and conformed to his image, that we might be strengthened for the battle ahead. Lord, we pray that you would um, give us what we need today that we might leave here encouraged and fortified with your word. Father, as we come to the table, we don't presume to come trusting in our own righteousness, but in your mercy. You are a merciful and gracious God. And so as we come to the table, Lord, to proclaim Christ's death, Father, it is our desire, it is our fervent desire that your name would be glorified and that Christ would return soon. It is our desire, Lord, that we might be with you in eternity soon. Father, we thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for the body of Christ broken, um, crucified for us. We thank you for the blood of Christ that was spilled for our sin. We long for the day when Christ returns. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.